Open your Bibles. We have been uh, on our way through a four-week journey through, I think I can safely say, one of the greatest stories of antiquity. So we're, we've been walking through the story of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 today. Ruth is the eighth book in your Bible. If, you're, if you have one of those old school paper Bibles that you have to like turn the pages, eighth book in. Uh, but to catch some of you up to speed, uh, the book of the story of Ruth starts with a lady named Naomi. And Naomi is married to Elimelech and there is a famine in Bethlehem and Naomi and Elimelech decide to flee Bethlehem and go to Moab. This was a bad decision. We discussed why two weeks ago. Then once in Moab, they decided to marry their two sons to Moabite women. Also a bad decision that we discussed two weeks ago. And then tragedy strikes. Elimelech and the two sons all die. So here's Naomi in a foreign land without food or family, which was not far from a death sentence in those days. And in addition to that, she has these two daughters-in-law that she needs to figure out how to take care of. So she looks at these daughters-in-law and she tries to compel them to go back to their homeland of Moab. Maybe there's some family that they can reconnect with, but they will be better off in Naomi's mind if they don't go with her back to Bethlehem, but go back to whatever family, wherever they came from in hopes of finding some food and some family. So one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she, she does that. She takes her advice, returns to Moab. Ruth, though, she doubles down on her commitment both to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And so the two of them return to Bethlehem where they hear that food has returned. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, we see God beginning to do incredible things. We see the food issue is largely solved and we begin to get inklings that maybe God is gonna work on this family thing as well. Ruth just happens into the, the field of a man named Boaz who, as it turns out, as luck would have it, is a kinsman redeemer. And we talked last week about the kinsman redeemer was, was one of the very few people that Ruth could marry, be taken care of, continue the line, the family name of Elimelech, and maintain this crazy significant vow that she made to Naomi, her mother-in-law. So she just happened into this field. And, and beyond that, Boaz, the name of this kinsman redeemer, shows interest in Ruth. And so all is looking very, very bright, but he hasn't proposed marriage. And we know that the harvest season is, is moving on. This isn't, this isn't a forever season. There is a season with a beginning and an end. And if Boaz is going to marry her, then it needs to happen within this season. And you can feel, I think, the tension here when you look at the last line in chapter two. The author says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Yeah, I think in any culture, it is a less than ideal situation if you're living with your mother-in-law. And this is coming from somebody who has lived with my mother-in-law on multiple occasions. So that's not meant to be a great thing. She's still living with her mother-in-law. And what I love about Ruth is from beginning to end in this book, we see a woman that models faith in so many ways. And specifically in chapter three, we see what I want to call a risky faith, a faith that is willing to take prayerful, educated, calculated risks to do what she thinks God wants her to do. 
I appreciate that this is uh, the, the day that we want to pray for the persecuted church because we're in an interesting season of transition in the 21st century West. In the 21st century West, we're seeing the door close on this season that we've had where you know, socially speaking, it benefits us to take, a, to take on this label of Christian. You know, we're, we're more socially acceptable if historically in this country, if we call ourselves Christians, our business is likely to do better. If we call ourselves Christian, we network within churches. But that season is, is now closing. And I'm thankful that for that season. I'm thankful for, you know, whatever part of it still exists. But as a result of that season, we now live in the most comfortable form of Christianity probably that the world has ever known. And if that's true, it shouldn't surprise us that the idea of a faith that takes steps towards risking our comfort and risking our safety is more foreign to us than most cultures around the world. So I think we, as 21st century Westerners, if, if, if that's what you would identify as, I think we have more to learn from Ruth chapter three than probably any other culture in the history of this world because we see Ruth in this chapter taking massive risks to do what it is that she thinks God wants her to do. So I wanna look at these, this, <laughs> this risk on display and I kind of just wanna look at her risky faith and follow her through the three scenes that we have in this chapter. You know, we have scene one, which is Naomi's instruction for Ruth. Here's what you're gonna do, daughter-in-law. Scene two, which is Ruth's pursuit of Boaz. And then scene three is Boaz's response. So we're gonna follow Ruth's risky fate through those three scenes. Scene one, I'll start reading at the beginning of the passage. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. I may have forgotten to mention that we're also looking at some of the shadiest sounding verses in the whole Bible. (laughs) And if you think that this sounds a little shady in English, let me tell you, everything I read about the original Hebrew speaking audience leads me to believe they wouldn't have just, these first few verses heard this as shady, they would have heard this as scandalous. I mean, there's no question that lying down, uncovering his feet, telling him to call the shots all in the dark, this would have raised eyebrows. I mean, this, this passage is admittedly full of words that are meant, that are used in other parts of the Bible and other parts of Hebrew literature to communicate sexual things. I mean, what, what would you do if word got out that this was how Skylar Flowers, our student minister, was advising our high school women to interact with boys. I mean, we would have an uproar if that's what Skylar was doing, if that's all the information we had. Now, in this story, that isn't all the information we have, but I think it is the author's intention to let our eyebrows go up 
and stay up for a little bit. So I'm going to allow our eyebrows just to stay up before I explain what I think is going on here. And I also, before I move on, I want to use this opportunity in these first few verses to set the stage a little more because I think there are things that are clearly communicated to the original audience that are easily missed in a 21st century Western culture. So first, there is this clear sense of urgency. We, we don't arrange our lives around the harvest seasons anymore the way they did in this agrarian society. But the, the barley and the wheat season, it was winding down. The, the opportunity for Boaz to step up and do what, what everybody wants him to do is winding down. So Naomi is going to Ruth and saying, it is time for us to take action. Second, we need to understand that Naomi, when she tells Ruth to wash and anoint herself, she's saying it's time for you to publicly declare to the world that you're done mourning my son and you're moving on and looking for a husband. Incidentally, this is exactly the same thing that King David did uh, when in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when he finished his season of mourning his son who had died that he conceived with Bathsheba, he washed himself, anointed himself, declared that season of mourning over. That's contextually what Naomi is saying by wash and anoint yourself. It's not simply go make yourself look pretty and smell pretty. There's something even more that's communicated. Third, Not only is this not your normal Hebrew courtship here, it's also insanely dangerous. I mean, this would require that she would be a single woman out in the dark. That's not safe. I I really, I I like how Naomi says, uh, observe the place where he lies. She knows it's gonna be dark. She's saying, don't do this with the wrong man. (laughs) That would be very dangerous. So there's risk just by being out, by it being dark, but not only is she out in the dark alone, she's on the threshing room floor where alcohol is being consumed. There would have been a party in the harvest season. That's a situation for a woman to be assaulted. On top of that, there was a huge risk just of her being seen because there was a type of promiscuous woman that would have hung out on the threshing room floor after this party had taken place. And if anybody had seen her and associated her with that kind of woman, well, any hopes she had of finding a godly marriage you know, within the proper context of society, that was out of the window. And then it was risky beyond all that because she didn't know how Boaz was gonna respond. She didn't know if he would have been highly offended by this gesture and call everything off. So it was risky. And then fourthly, Naomi is really clear about the timing. It needs to happen after he has eaten, after he has drunk, has drunk, not is drunk, has drunk, and after he has rested. And, and most, you know, there are, and I said, no, there are some people out there who think, well, th- what she's doing, she's making sure he's drunk so that he will respond in the way that, that she'll respond. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think we have a reason in the context to believe that's what's going on. What I see is that Naomi's been married before and she knows that a man is just more reasonable after he has eaten and taken a nap. <laughs> she doesn't want a hangry Boaz on her hands. And so those are the instructions, and Ruth replies, all that you say, I will do. And people wonder, but you know, why did she have to do this in the dark at night? Why on the threshing room floor? Why couldn't she go to the field and talk to him in the light? Why couldn't there be a, a mediator? And my honest answer is, I don't know. 
I can take guess. Maybe she felt like it had to be her. No one was going to communicate the same way she would. Maybe this is literally the only time that she can get him alone. I don't know. But I think the author wants you to be a little nervous at this point. This is insanely risky. We should feel the nervousness, feel the tension, understanding the calculated risk that they're taking. And now we get to look at scene two. Ruth's pursuit of Boaz. I'm going to start reading at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. All right, again, not the typical Hebrew love story. You have an older Hebrew man, a younger Moabite woman who apparently would put me to shame in a barley hauling contest. And then you have this whole thing on the floor uh, with the feet being revealed in the dark, And there are absolutely sexual overtones here, but I don't think what is going on here is sexual in nature. I don't think it fits the context. I mean, everything we know from the book book of Ruth and the whole Bible, it puts out Ruth and Boaz to be great examples of faith and character. I mean, when you you think about the feet being uncovered, to me, it's just logical. She needs him to wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, so that uncovers feet, he's going to get cold, he's going to wake up. That makes the most sense in the context of what we're seeing. And yes, she is watching him without him being aware as he goes to bed. She's watching him sleep. It's a little creepy. You'd probably get arrested for that today. (laughs) But her intentions are clearly good. I couldn't help this week but think about uh, my son Collins when he was two. He would constantly come out of his room. We had a lot of trouble getting him to stay in his room because he just wanted to be with us. So it wasn't uncommon when he was two and his head, as he's standing, it was right the same height as my head in bed and I'd open my eyes and there's his face (laughs) just staring at me. 